Well, I bring you greetings from New Covenant Community Church. Is that a good name? We are in Kettering, just south of Dayton, and it's our church plant from Grace Covenant Church there in Beaver Creek. Uh, God has been so good to us, and I'm excited to share with you just a little bit about what God has done for us. We started gathering um, last year in November 2020. No better time to plant a church than in the middle of a pandemic. God provided a place for us by a Christian businessman who has generously provided for us. We have not yet formally chartered as a church, but we definitely act like one. Um, We were blessed to have Pastor Kidder and his wife come and join us uh, for worship uh, while he was on sabbatical, and it's so good to uh, strengthen the relationships we have as churches. I'm so thankful for him and for you as a church as well. Uh, since you came, we have uh, expanded our space a little bit. Um, it was a little small when he was there with us. Uh, so we knocked down some walls and we almost doubled our space. And we've got some room to grow, but we're still looking for a more permanent location. We're confident that God will provide in his time. Uh, I'll give you a few prayer requests for us. First, I'll give you a few bullet points for us to pray for. Uh, pray for our chartering as a church. Uh, our plans right now are to do so in May or June of this next year. And as we anticipate that, we've been working through our own book of faith and order, kind of shoring up what it means for us to be a local church. And please pray also that God would provide a bigger and more permanent public space for our worship services. Um, Also, pray for our body, that we would continue to grow in love and in unity. It's been so good just to meet with this smaller group of people for a year now and just to see how our hearts are binding together in love. Pray also for our leadership. Uh, I have one other elder with me. Now, but I would love to have a third elder join, and so we are looking at other men who could possibly join in that ministry with me. And then finally, please also just pray for our evangelism uh, as we seek to reach that community with the gospel. That's why we are there. We have a church to reach those people who live there with the gospel. Well, I'm honored to bring God's word to you this morning, Um, and even though my family and I and our church and our church plant, uh, we we know you from a distance, (laughs) Uh, we have great joy in knowing that we are united in faith with Logansville Community Church here, which is not in Logansville, right? It's in DeGraff. It is. It is. I'm just trying to figure out the area. <clears throat> so you, you encourage us simply by knowing that you are faithfully preaching the gospel week after week here. Uh, thank you for your partnership in the gospel with us. This morning I come here to inquire of this local body about your joy. I was... Pleased to meet several of you in the 15 minutes before service here and to see many joyful people. Um, But I still ask you and I ask all Christians, we are called, we are even commanded to have joy. In Philippians chapter 4 verse 4, the Apostle Paul thinks it's worthy to immediately repeat himself telling us to rejoice in the Lord always, again I will say, rejoice. So the simple question for us this morning is this. Christian, how is your joy? In our culture today, it seems strange to think of joy as something that can be commanded of us. It's typically thought of simply as happiness about our external circumstances, circumstances which are largely out of our control. How can we command something that is dependent on our environment? 
I can't seem to control the fact that certain bad things happen to me. If I could control them, I definitely wouldn't have chosen for them to happen. Perhaps you're thinking right now about some situation or person in that you have difficulty having joy in. Maybe you're thinking about the death of a loved one or some condition of poverty you find yourself in. Perhaps it's pain, either physical or emotional or relational. Paul would go on in the following verses in, in Philippians 4 to tell us that he has learned the secret of being content in all circumstances, even in facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And as we will see in our passage today in the first chapter of Philippians, there is one thing that reveals our joy more than anything else, and that is our prayers. How are we praying? Are we praying with joy? What do we pray for? Do we pray that our circumstances might change? Our Lord taught us when facing the cup of God's wrath to pray most importantly for the Lord's will to be done. And he urged his sleepy followers to pray that they might resist temptation. Our text this morning in Philippians chapter 1 is a prayer filled with joy. And our challenge this morning is whether we share this joy as Christians. So before I read and consider our text, we should consider a few things about the book as a whole and the church that it was written to. As for the background of this letter, Paul, Silas, and Luke first visited Philippi in Acts chapter 16, and they encountered a woman named Lydia at a prayer meeting down by the river. The Lord opened her heart, and she opened her home, and they then encountered a slave girl who, through divination, had brought her master's considerable wealth. And after commanding the spirit to come out, the slave masters subsequently lost their source of income, and they went and complained to the city magistrates, who then beat the missionaries and put them in prison. But while in prison, Paul and Silas are filled with joy. They were praying and singing hymns, and an earthquake freed them of their chains and their prison doors. The Philippian jailer saw what had happened and decided that death was a better option than failure. But Paul prevented him from killing himself because they did not flee. Paul's prayers were answered, not because of the opening of the jail doors, but because of the opening of an opportunity to evangelize the jailer. And because Paul cared more about the jailer than the jail, he was asked every evangelist's dream question, what must I do to be saved? After this, the city officials wanted to get rid of Paul and Silas quietly, but Paul plays his Roman citizen card and demands an official apology. And so the Philippian church begins with a seller of purple down by the edge of a river, and a jailer of people by the edge of the sword. To the Romans in Philippi, Christianity's beginning here is seen as a threat to the economy and an embarrassment to be quietly removed. But to the believers there, it is freedom and life. And with the writing of an apostolic letter to one church, all churches are encouraged in their faith. Because we see that we face the same kinds of trials and we are united in the same glorious truth that all believers confess today and that one day every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, not Rome, not money, and not slave masters. Paul wrote this letter roughly 11 to 12 years after the church was established there. And it's encouraging to see Paul's healthy, ongoing relationship with this church more than a decade later. And I pray that our church and the church here in Logansville can continue to have decades-long relationships as sister churches. 
The occasion for this letter is sparked as a thank you for the Philippians' ongoing support. And he wants them to know that he has received the gift that Epaphroditus had brought him. So I, too, want to thank Logansville for your support. Paul also sets the stage for further encouragement that will come from Timothy, whom Paul wants to send to them. And so we, we see a sharing of ministers here. These two men are lifted up as Christ-like examples of the faith, which brings us to the most important reason for sending this letter. Paul wants to strengthen them in their faith. He wants to alleviate any concern that they may have because of the suffering he faces in prison and the similar suffering that the Philippian Christians may face as well. It's easy for us to get distracted and discouraged in our faith, especially in the face of suffering. And so Paul wants to reorient them and us to the right focus, towards the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel that's in this book proclaims Jesus humbles himself and puts on flesh and he serves us. And through faith in him, we obtain his righteousness. And in following Christ, we live and die according to the pattern that he set for us. The pattern of suffering and death and resurrection and then glorious exaltation. And this hope of glory puts all suffering into context. The joy in the book of Philippians is that Paul shares with the believers a profound unity, a unity around the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it's a unity that is only possible with those who share the same gospel. So the summary of this book as a whole could very well be this. We rejoice in our unity in the gospel. Right from the beginning of this book, as we will see in our reading now, Paul sets the stage for this central message, the central message that we rejoice over our unity in the gospel. And so I invite you to look at Philippians chapter 1 as we read verses 1 through 11. I'd invite you also to stand for the reading of God's word. This is Philippians chapter 1. In reverence to God, hear the word of the Lord. Philippians 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. You may be seated. And may all who hear the word of, this Lord, the word of the Lord this morning be both hearers and doers. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, as we have heard your word this morning, I ask that you would humble our hearts, that we would see Jesus Christ and exalt him in our midst, in our churches, 
may we have great joy over our unity in our faith. Give us now that joy by your Holy Spirit as we consider your word. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Paul begins this letter in typical fashion with a salutation and a thanksgiving and a prayer. And even from that salutation, Paul is setting up that central message that we rejoice over our unity in the gospel. As Paul refers to himself and Timothy as servants of Christ Jesus and the saints in Philippi. Just as Jesus is described in chapter 2 as our servant in the gospel. So Christians serve one another in humility. And now this morning, I seek to be your servant to encourage you in your faith. To see that you would have the same joy over our unity in the gospel. Now we're primarily considering verses 3 through 11 this morning. The opening thanksgiving and prayer. And in it, Paul highlights the comprehensiveness of his thanksgiving with saying a form of the word all four times. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. And in the following verses, Paul mentions five things that he shares with the Philippians that bring him joy. Five shared joys. And these five shared joys are commonalities that all Christians ought to be able to say about one another. By God's grace, we too can be joyful about these commonalities in each other this morning. We are challenged this morning asking ourselves if these are the things that we have joy in as well. The first shared joy that Paul has with the church and that we should have with each other is our shared faithfulness. Looking at verses 3 through 5, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. The first joy that Paul has here is in their shared faithfulness, their partnership in the gospel. And this phrase, partnership in the gospel, could even be seen as a summary for all that Paul shares with them. Everything we share, we only truly share because we share the gospel. The gospel is what unifies Christians. The gospel is not simply what saves us. It is the thing that continues to motivate and sanctify believers throughout their lives. He says, from the first day until now. To indicate that their partnership began at their conversion when they first believed the gospel and it continues throughout the life of the believer. The gospel is not simply for a moment of conversion. It is true that the first time that you look in faith to Christ on the cross dying for your sins and you look to the Lord as raised for our justification, that at that moment you are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the Son. But the reason we come to church week after week and open our Bibles with our families day after day is for the purpose of continually feeding on this bread of life again. The the truth of our redemption is the power of God for our salvation. It's a truth that frees us from sin for eternity and from our temptations that we face every day. Now, when Paul uses this term for gospel in verse 5, he means more than just the content of our faith because it comes as part of that larger phrase, partnership in the gospel. Paul's referencing his own ministry here, bringing the gospel to the Philippians and then to all the world as well. And as the rest of the book of Philippians goes on to describe, this church had a personal interest in Paul's well-being. And they backed that up, that, that care with financial support by sending Epaphroditus to care for him. They were concerned about him, especially because he was in prison 
and they put their money where their mouth was. They didn't just say that he hoped he was well. They took effort to ensure his well-being too. And so when Paul rejoices over their partnership in the gospel with him, it includes both of these components. Partnership in the gospel includes both a shared belief and ministry. They have the same faith and the same outworking of that faith. The content of what they believe to be true is the same, and their convictions about how that faith ought to be lived out is the same as well. And the one word that can describe both of these concepts together is faithfulness. They are faithful to the truth of the gospel, and they are faithful to display that gospel with their lives. Faithfulness is not simply believing something to be true, like having faith in something. As the Apostle James tells us, we must show our faith by our works. If you believe the gospel to be true, then to be faithful to the gospel means that you will show by your actions that it is true. One of the things the gospel tells us is that we are bound together as one body in Christ. As we seek to spread the truth of what Jesus has done to all the earth. The Philippians understood this. And they partnered with Paul in the gospel. And this is what Paul has joy over. So when I think about Logansville Community Church, I am encouraged by the faithfulness I find here. And when we think about other Christians and other churches especially like our fellowship with other like-minded churches, like with our fire fellowship. And even as we think about our fellowship with some that we may have some disagreements with, are we filled with joy, like Paul was about the Philippians? The second shared joy that we should have with each other is our shared confidence. So we have our shared faithfulness, And now our shared confidence. He says this in verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The confidence that Paul has here is in God's work on behalf of the believer. God had begun a good work in the Philippians by bringing them to faith in the gospel, by saving them from their sin. And God continues to work in the heart of the believer through sanctification our progressive, ongoing growth in holiness. And and just as sure as God has accomplished this work in their lives in the past, in their justification, and as sure as God is accomplishing this work in the present, in sanctification, they are guaranteed that God would complete His work in their lives in glorification. For obvious reasons, this verse is a favorite of many, but we, we don't often stop to think about the context that it is found in. We, we typically think of this verse rather generically, right? saying basically, you know, God's doing something good in your life and he's not giving up on you. And well, that's, that's fine and all, but God is doing something specific in our lives. And this is what we should have confidence about. And our biggest clue as to what God is doing and promises to complete in our lives comes in the last three verses in our consideration this morning, verses 9 through 11. I'll read that again. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ." filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the work that God is doing in the believer and promises to complete. He is making them pure and blameless. And our connection between verses 6 and verse 10 is in the words, the day of Christ used in both verses. When Jesus returns, God's work will be complete. And so as we were encouraged in our previous point about to be faithful to the gospel, 
to, to joyfully share in the gospel ministry through partnership in the body of Christ, now we are given confidence for our faithfulness. The call for us to be faithful is the call to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to do what God would have us to do, to live the life he would have us to live, to be pure and blameless, to be holy as he is holy, but now we are given the confidence to do so. Our confidence is not based on our own efforts or ability. Our confidence is is in God's work. Our faithfulness is based on God's faithfulness. God will do it. He will purify his bride, and that is why we have confidence to be faithful ourselves. The last thing I want you to note about this second shared joy, our shared confidence, is that the phrase being confidence, being confident modifies how Paul is praying. Confidence is the attitude of prayer. Do we pray with confidence? Maybe we don't. Maybe it's, it's because we're praying for things that we are not guaranteed to get. As James 4 tells us, Sometimes we pray and don't receive what we ask for because we're just being selfish. We're seeking to indulge our own desires. We need to be praying for the things that God has promised to give us. We are to pray that God would make us holy and blameless, that God would complete the work of sanctification that he's begun in us. We are to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And to pray and not doubt because God has promised a crown of life to those who love him. And he is the father of lights who loves to give us the wisdom needed to navigate the sea of life we find ourselves in. This is why we have joy in our partnership in the gospel. Because we have a shared confidence. The third shared joy that we should have with each other is our shared burden. It's a joy that we have a shared burden. Verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. The shared burden we have is the burden of ministry. Paul had earlier described the Philippians as partners with him in the gospel. Now he describes them as partakers with him of grace. And he gives two explanations for what he means to be a partaker with him in grace. First, they were partakers of grace in Paul's imprisonment. Now, they they weren't actually imprisoned with him, but they cared for him in prison. They sent Epaphroditus to minister to him. They didn't forget him. They weren't embarrassed by him or afraid that they too might be put into prison for associating themselves with Paul. Just as Jesus before us went to the cross, scorning its shame, so now Paul and the Philippians were not ashamed of being put into prison on account of the gospel. Going to prison is a burden. And it's a burden we don't normally want to bear. You know, people aren't lining up to go to jail, right? Sign me up for that ministry, right? I mean, people are signing up for the nursery, but uh, it's not quite jail. Paul says that bearing this burden is a natural consequence of being a partaker of grace. And that being imprisoned could even be received from God as a gracious gift to us. Peter tells us in his first epistle that when you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, 
for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Because Paul is a partaker in grace, it doesn't matter that he's in jail. He can even sing hymns and rejoice in that setting. We're told that to follow Jesus, we must take up the burden of our own cross and that this is the grace of God that we get to do so. Jesus would say in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What a joy it is that we may be partakers of such a yoke, a burden. Second, though, they were partakers of grace in Paul's defense and confirmation of the gospel. This is the burden of a gospel ministry to defend it in both truth and practice. To be vigilant in guarding against lies and sin. Perhaps this ministry of the gospel happened very practically as Paul was sharing his faith with guards and the prisoners he was among. Maybe they had a good prison ministry there. Because, you know, in Philippi, one of their first convicts was the, converts was the jailer. However that defense and confirmation of the gospel looked, Paul considered them as partakers of this grace with him. What a privilege it is for us to take up the burden of ministry. It's not a work of drudgery. It is something we joyfully share with one another. Our shared burden is why we have a church plant. We must be going and multiplying churches throughout the world to make disciples of all nations and all neighborhoods. Are we sharing in the burden of ministry? Can we say along with Romans 1.16 that we are not ashamed of the gospel and that we feel obligated, even burdened, to share it with all people? Do we have joy in this shared burden? It is God's grace that we might partake in the ministry of defending and confirming the gospel together. And how do we do that? How do we do that together? Well, the next two shared joys help us to bring us even more clarity here. So we have our shared faithfulness, a shared confidence, and a shared burden. Our fourth shared joy that we should have with each other is our shared affection. Verses 7 to 8. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all... Partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. The affection we have is the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul is very affectionate with the Philippians. In fact, he's probably more affectionate with them than any other church that he wrote to. Speaking again about his joyful remembrance of them, he says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. And then in verse 8, For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. You might want to Take notes if you're a young man out there, you know, pursuing the apple of your eye. There's some good material here. I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. If she doesn't take that, you can just say you're quoting Scripture. But seriously, though, this is a remarkable affection. You don't just talk this way to an acquaintance. This is intimate. This is passionate feeling for others. This is that achy kind of yearning where you just have to be with these people. It's that 
pit of your stomach longing for someone that you miss so bad that it hurts. How do you come about this kind of affection? Well, the answer to that question is in the qualifier. This is the affection of Christ Jesus. This is an affection that you can only have because you are bound together with these people in Jesus. This is the friendship that is closer than a brother. This is the Ephesians 4, unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The affection of Christ Jesus cannot be found anywhere else in the world. Sappy romance novels have got nothing on the affection of Christ Jesus. It's the affection that can only come as our hearts burn within us as we open the scriptures together. You know, we don't always talk about our emotions that much or that well. They're easily neglected because, you know, They're not objective. How often have our emotions led us astray? Talking about our emotions makes us feel like we're, you know, in some kind of 12-step program, therapy. But this talk here about affections is not how the world talks about affections and emotions. The world follows their emotions, The world begins with the idea that emotion is uncontrollable and morally neutral, and therefore, if you feel it, it must be okay. So just follow your heart. So we're told in like every Disney movie ever. Our response to the emotionalism of the world around us should not be to ignore our emotions, but to seek to have rightly ordered emotions. That's even the first thing that Paul says here in verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you. That implies that there could possibly be wrong to feel a certain way. We need to be right in our emotions. Our emotions must be informed by the truth of the word of God. And the truth that Paul is responding to here is all that we've talked about so far. The truth that they are partners in the gospel, that that God is sure to complete the work that he is doing in them, and that they are partakers together in grace. This is one of the ways we share the burdens of gospel partnership, to have an affection for one another. Can we say that we have rightly ordered affection for our brothers and sisters in Christ? Or do we kind of get annoyed at some people and try to avoid them? Does your heart leap for joy when you meet another Christian? Maybe when you find out that that person in front of you at the grocery store is a Christian. Do you think about other Christians in other places and wish that you could be in close fellowship with them? Do we miss our missionaries? Or do we just send them money and then forget about them? By God's grace, we can say that we feel this way about the saints here at Logansville Community Church. We would love to be together in worship every Sunday, week after week, day after day, as we would with every believer. What we must recognize here is that this affection is otherworldly. It's a love that is alien to Hollywood movies. It's a love that is strange to your happily married atheist neighbors. And that's because it's the affection of Christ Jesus. It's the love with which Jesus has first loved us. It's a love that denies yourself, that lays down your life for the good of the other with purity of motives, not seeking selfish gain. This is what Jesus did on the cross as he forgave our sins. This is what we do for each other as we likewise forgive one another. 
and the world will see this gospel love among us and be amazed and wonder and glorify God on the day of visitation. There's a final shared joy in this passage, though. Knowing the truth that we are partners together in the gospel, that our confidence is in God's work, promised work, and that we are partakers together in grace, that then leads us to have a great affection for one another. And finally, that leads us to pray for one another. Everything that Paul has said in verses 3 through 8 has been background information to explain why he prays the way he does for the Philippians. Then in verses 9 through 11, we have Paul's prayer. And his prayer forms the content of our fifth shared joy this morning. The fifth shared joy that we should have with each other is our shared hope. Verses 9 through 11 again. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The shared hope we have is the hope of glory. The glory and praise that belongs to God alone. And our hope is that we might see that glory and give that praise. Prayers are always an expression of what we long for, what we hope for. But it is also true that prayers that God is pleased to answer are those that are based on truth. As we talked about earlier, we can't just expect to receive the answers to prayer that are simply us wanting to fulfill our selfish desires. God doesn't facilitate our entitlement. Well, just because we think we deserve something doesn't give us a good reason to anticipate receiving it. And God doesn't placate us either. He doesn't just give us what we want because he's so annoyed at how much we're whining about it. Prayers that please God, that give glory and praise to him, are those that ask for the things that he is eager to give to us. He is eager to give good gifts to his children. And so the more we know the truth of God's word, the more we know his heart, the more we are able to pray with confidence knowing that we will receive what we ask from our Heavenly Father. We worship God in spirit, in truth. We must pray in spirit and in truth. And the truth that the prayer in verses 9 through 11 is based on is the truth that we've been talking about in our previous four points today. It is true that we are united together in Christ, partakers of the same grace. We rejoice over our unity in the gospel. We share the same gospel. We share the same Lord. And what we share, what we rejoice over, our faith, our confidence, our ministry, and our affection are all rooted in the gospel that we share. And on this basis... What does Paul pray for? What should we pray for concerning one another? He prays that we would have even more love for one another. A love that abounds, that increases more and more. It's kind of like what we might pray for for a newlywed couple, right? They they have a love that is sufficient enough for them to get married, but we pray that their love doesn't stop there. Their wedding day is not the apex of their existence. It's not the fullest expression of their love. It's only the beginning. And by God's grace, they will grow in that love so that they love each other every day more and more than before, so that they have a mature and deep and lasting love. Likewise in the church, we are marked off as different than the world around us because the love of Christ is in our midst, growing more and more every day. Paul gives us some qualifiers here to this love as well. There are two ways that he wants their love to increase. He wants their love to grow in knowledge and discernment. First, we ha must have a love that grows in knowledge. 
In other words, this is not a blind and ignorant love. It's a love in truth. As we grow in our knowledge of the truth, we ought to grow in our love for one another. But how often does the opposite happen? As we learn more about another person, we tend to realize how unlovable they really are. And in a general sense, why is it that those who are often thought of as more knowledgeable are often thought of as cold intellectuals? Why is an increase in knowledge and an increase in love often inversely proportionate to one another? Only only the sinfulness of our fallen humanity can explain this. For this is not how God loves us. God would know us better than we know ourselves. And despite who we are, he would love his children unconditionally. That is the nature of our redemption in Jesus Christ, that he would not hold our sin against us, and he would love us with the love that only Jesus deserves. And our salvation in Jesus Christ is the supreme truth of which we are to grow in knowledge. It is the truth that is of first importance, that empowers us to grow in love more and more for one another. If it is true that God would love and forgive my brother or sister in Christ, then ought I not to do the same? That's the first qualifier to this love, that it would come with knowledge. Second, we are to have a love that comes with discernment. A discerning love is is able to sift through all that comes to us when we consider another person. It's not the kind of love that is often advocated in the world today that says, you just have to accept me for whoever I am. This is me, so deal with it. And if you don't affirm everything about me, then you don't love me. (laughs) That's not love. For love to be true love, it must be accompanied with discernment. And the next phrase in that verse then defines what discernment is. It's the ability to approve what is excellent. This is one of Paul's main applications in the book. In Philippians 4.8, we are to think about things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and praiseworthy, we must think about these things. And the purpose, as he says later in chapter 4, is that our sacrificial acts of love might be seen as fragrant offerings that are acceptable and pleasing to God. Discernment must accompany our love because love is not arbitrary. Love is is not whatever makes someone else feel good. Love is not some expression that is dependent on my personality makeup. Love is objective because God is love. And everything that is loving is in accordance with God's character. The purpose of knowledge and discernment Modifying our love is is first so that we can approve what is excellent and second so that we may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. As we choose the good and excellent and praiseworthy things that please God, we are filled with the fruit of righteousness. This is our hope. This is our prayer that the holiness of God would be displayed in our lives, that all the glory may go to Christ. The fruit of righteousness does not come through our own merits, but through the finished work of Christ for us. The guaranteed work that God would do. This is the work that God has begun in us and is guaranteed to bring to completion. And this is what we confidently pray for. This is our hope of glory that we sing about and give praise to God for. That the righteousness that belongs to Jesus Christ we now share because we hold on to the promise of life given to those who have faith in Jesus. 
we defend and confirm this gospel together. And we live out that righteousness in joy and affection for one another, praying for each other, spurring one another on to love and good deeds, all the more as we see the day approaching. And so, Logansville Community Church, I ask you again, how is your joy? I pray that your joy would increase this morning because you know that you share with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We share a partnership in the gospel. We share a confidence in God's work. We share a burden of ministry. We share the affection of Jesus Christ. And we share the hope of glory, of the glory of God displayed through our lives of righteousness as we pray for one another concerning these things. Would you pray for us? Let me pray for you. Our Father in heaven, we are filled with joy at the knowledge of Jesus Christ, of your love to us, your affection, your tender mercy to us through Jesus Christ. And we praise you, Lord, that you have filled our hearts with this joy to know that you know us better than we even know ourselves, and yet you've forgiven us and washed us and made us pure by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we're so thankful that we are now at peace and we are united with you in your love, a divine love that you have shared before even the world began. What a mystery it is that we would be united with you now by faith. And I pray, Lord, for this church, that they would know the love of God that surpasses knowledge, that they would be filled with that fruit of righteousness that comes as their love abounds more and more, that they would be a shining light in this community and even the whole world of this foreign love, this love that cannot be found anywhere else in the world but in the body of Christ. And help us, Lord, to grow in our affection for each other, our joy that we share in the body of Christ, that we are united and one in you. And so we ask, Lord, with great confidence that you would complete this work of growing your church to becoming mature and holy and blameless. Help us, Lord, to pursue what you would have us to pursue, that we would be pleasing and honoring to you, that we would live lives worthy of you for worship. We pray this in Jesus' name.